my dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. My whole life, I've been told this one story about my family, about how my great-great-grandmother was killed by the mafia back in Sicily. I was never sure if it was true, so I decided to find out. And even though my Uncle Jimmy told me I'd only be making the vendetta worse, I'm going to Sicily anyway. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Hello, from Wonder Media Network, I'm Jenny Kaplan, host of Womanica, a daily podcast that introduces you to the fascinating lives of women history has forgotten. We've always been intrigued by stories of disappearances. Whether it's a fraudster from the 17th century who kept evading the authorities, or a novelist who taunted the Nazis and faked her own death, we all want to know, what happened next? To find out, listen to Womanica on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Sam Edis. And I'm Amy Nelson. Welcome to What's Her Story with Sam and Amy. This is a show about the world's most remarkable women, their professional and personal journeys. Together, we'll hear from gold medalists, best-selling authors, and leaders of the world's most iconic brands. Today, we have Austin Channing Brown on the show. She's a thought leader, speaker, and New York Times bestselling author of the book, I'm Still Here, Black Dignity in a World Made for Whiteness. You know, Aim, it was my 15-year-old daughter, Ella, who saw Austin speak at her school and immediately texted me and said, you have to have her on the show. <laughs> it was really cute when I when I uh, invited Austin to the show. She said, I'll come on as long as I can meet Ella. So it was really cute. <laughs> Oh, that's amazing. I'm so glad she invited her. And I cannot wait for our audience to hear this thought-provoking conversation. But Sam, before we get started with our question, let's have Ella ask the first one. Okay, so it's such a big topic, so there might not be, but if there's one big thing that you could tell parents, I guess, regardless of race, but also whose kids maybe aren't in communities that are super diverse, like one message that they could bring to their kids, what would that be? Yeah, it's um, it's that you have to be the one to talk to your kids about race. 
right? I think there are a lot of parents who opt out. And funny enough, for either reason, <laughs> they opt out because there's all kinds of diversity, right? And they feel like, well, we don't need to talk about it because our our city, our suburb, our neighborhood, our whatever is overflowing with diversity. It's all around us, right? And then on the opposite end, parents think, well, since there's no diversity, there's no reason to talk about it. You know, there was someone with a podcast and a parent called in and said, when should I start talking to my kid about race? And the podcaster said, somewhere around the time that they're six months old. And the parent was like, I'm sorry, what? (laughs) What do you mean six months? And she said, not for your kid, for you. Because you need to start practicing right now. And you need to get comfortable with the conversation. And you need to start reading. And you need to start preparing. So that by the time your kid is asking questions, you already have answers. And you already know how you want to approach it. So I wish I could tell parents that it is part of your responsibility in preparing for what I hope we all want, which is an anti-racist world, right? That you have a role in that. So Austin, you have a three-year-old son, right? I do. Do you talk to him about race? You know what? Right now, we try really hard to let him enjoy being a little Black boy. So the ways that we, um, so we don't talk to him about race outright, but we do what I think a lot of Black parents do, which is when we put lotion on him, we talk about how beautiful his skin is, and we're intentional about telling him how smart he is. Um, We play a lot of Black music in our house. Um, We just moved, and so I am very intentional about the art that we put up. Um, the fabric choices that we make, the, you know, everything. But I know that the day is coming when we won't be able to, well, we'll have to talk the other side. You know, we won't just be able to talk about the beauty of what it means to be Black, but we will have to also talk about the ugly side of America. Um, but we have, we have not done so yet because we just want him to maintain his little innocence and his little joy for as long as makes sense, you know. What will that conversation look like? Yeah, I'm not sure. I think part of it will depend on his school and his teachers and his principal and his curriculum. You know, um, I suspect that to some degree, these conversations will unfold naturally because of my job. I, like I mentioned, I just bought a new house. And so we just picked up these new chairs and as you all can see, there's like a million books in the chairs. Um, and they're they're all about racial justice. So where do you live now? Where did you move? We're outside Detroit. How different is the community you've moved to from the community you grew up in? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, <laughs> well, this neighborhood is really nice. Really <laughs> nice. And where I grew up to isn't in like shambles or anything. I I remember being in college and talking with my roommate about what we would do after we graduated and what our, you know, goals were and everything. And we were both very socially minded even then. And we both agreed that as long as we could make $30,000 of four Cheez-Its and chocolate shake at least once a week, that that was it. That was all we needed. To now be living in a house that my dad walks through and he's like, okay, let me make sure I don't break anything (laughs) because... I sure can't replace nothing in here. It feels miraculous. Um, But as we were choosing a neighborhood, 
in some ways, thankfully, um, we were looking during the election season. And so we were able mm-hmm. to see how many signs were in the yards and what mm-hmm. those signs said. Mm-hmm. We were very intentional about what the demographics would look like in the neighborhood, in the schools. Um, we were adamant that my son not be the only one in his classroom ever. That's just not an experience that we want for him. And we chose a daycare in which there are other little Black boys just like him. He's in a community that at least most of the time feels safe. And unfortunately, we have to wait to see if the neighborhood proves me right. Mm. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about what the experience of being the only is like both at work and in school? Mm -hmm. It's not fun. It feels like the weight of your entire community is sitting on your shoulders It is the double consciousness that um, W.E.B. Du Bois talks about, where I am aware that I am a human and an individual, right? My name is Austin Channing Brown, and I am responsible for me and my actions only, right? But I'm also aware that teachers, if I I do something, say something, that that is now going to be a reflection on every Black kid Mm. in the school, perhaps every Black kid that they meet. Right. That when the topic of black history comes up, that I am carrying the weight of making sure that my community is now well represented and that I speak for it. And um, and honestly, it's just it's isolating because I think white people do not realize how often a lecture, a curriculum, references, icebreakers are built around the idea of their own normality and therefore universality. Mm-hmm. And so often when you're the only one, you just want to scream, that's that's not my life. That's not how things work for me. It's exhausting. But most yeah. white people have never experienced that level of exhaustion. I believe that. I want to ask another question about school. Uh, You wrote in your book, uh, this chapter around the stories we tell Mm -hmm. and talking about how, you know, we erase, we erase many of the ugly parts of American history. Like we we don't really talk about slavery even in school or the reality of slavery, right? We say this existed, but we're not going to talk about how it existed. That's right. Did you, did you know that when you were growing up? Like, did you, were you cognizant of that when you were taking American history when you were a teenager? Yes. I remember my mother having a book called Lies My Teacher Told Me. Yes. And I don't remember anything in that book, (laughs) y'all. I don't remember any details in that book. But I remember her having it. and, And I remember she wanted so badly to round out my education, right? Mm -hmm. To say, okay, glad you're learning about Christopher Columbus, but let's think about this word discovery. How do you discover something where people already live? You know, and and let's let's talk about what happened when he arrived, okay? Um, So I feel like a lot of Black household education looks like that. And now for a quick break. My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. 
Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm preaching to somebody today who is waiting for God to give you your next step. And you don't know what it is yet. You need God to show you your next step. Because God, I can't stay where I am like I am where it is. This isn't going to work. I have to move on, but I don't know where. A lot of time you'll use it as an excuse. Well, I don't know how. I don't know where. I don't know what. God, if you show me. God, if you tell me. God, if no, 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 no. You know enough right now. And if you needed to know more, he would show you. Hey, this is Stephen Furtick. I want to invite you to listen to my podcast, Elevation with Stephen Furtick. I am here to help you for the battles that you face in life, for the times when you feel discouraged, for the times that you need guidance from God. I want to give you the truth of what he says about you to help you rise to your full potential. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. 
Listen to Woke App Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So in terms of the system and the American school system, how close is that to being dismantled in terms of what we learn, the curriculum, and changing it? Because it's, I mean, the more I read about it, the more infuriated I am. And when I hear what my kids are learning in school, I feel angry. So yes. how do how does that how do we erase that? How do we go backwards? Well, it's really important that white parents say exactly what you just said, right? Because the 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 dominant uh, feeling is that black folks are the only ones who are upset. And that because we're the only ones upset, we must just be in our feelings and it must not be that important. Mm. But for parents, for white parents to say, there are not enough black female teachers in this school. I don't don't like this curriculum. This is not, we are not teaching the whole history of America. For white parents Mm -hmm. to say, my child is also suffering by not having a more diverse, inclusive curriculum and being taught by the diversity that exists in the world, my child is losing out too. Is there any organization that everyone can get behind that's like close to changing this? Is Who's at the forefront of this movement? I honestly don't know because there are so many battles being fought, <laughs> right? There is the battle around curriculum. There is the battle around hiring and retention. There's the battle around specific problematic teachers and or professors, there's, right, that it it isn't just one thing. And so if this is something you're passionate about, my encouragement would be to find out if there's something local happening where you are, you know, are there parents who have already been speaking to the principal about this? Are there, is there sort of a a multicultural subsection of the, um, the PTA or of the, right, what is happening? Where is the conversation happening where you are um, is the question that I would start with because it's entirely possible that people have already started working on this and you just didn't know. You're just not on the newsletter. So your, your parents, um, you've already talked to us about, they named you Austin. And in your book, you write that they did that to outwit everyone by giving their daughter a white man's name. Let me tell you. What are your well parents like? <laughs> How well it works. The mail I get. Um, my parents are characters. Um, my mother is an intellectual butterfly. Mm-hmm. She is she is extraordinarily smart and questions everything and loves debate and conversation. But she also has a real estate license. She also can... She has like ceramic making classes. My father is a very um, big personality. He is one of those personalities who knows everybody and everybody knows him. He had a very similar upbringing to the one I had. So my dad is actually is, is from an all black community. But by the time he was 16, um, he because of a, um, a basketball scholarship, he was I'm about to say he was able to go away to school. Like he went to boarding school, but he didn't really want to be there. So I'm not sure able is the word he would use. (laughs) (laughs) He talks all the time about how he called home and was like, I don't want to be around all these white folks. Like, get me out of here. What is happening? Take me home. 
And so, yeah, so he went to boarding school where he was the only black kid in most of his classes. And then he went to a private white college where once again, he was kind of the only one in a lot of his courses. Um, But I don't think there's any doubt that both of those things have made him who he is. So on the one Mm -hmm. hand, he is like really hood and really down with the cause and on the other hand, he is like, but what do I need to do to maneuver around these white people so I can do what I need to do? And I think those things have both come out in the way he raised me. <laughs> <laughs> How has your experience with race as a child impacted your adult life? I really thought because I was educated around white folks that I was the white culture whisperer. I thought that I could not even so much code switch, though maybe, um, but I thought I knew what they wanted to hear. I knew who I was expected to be. And I was pretty good at walking the line between who I actually was without losing too much of myself when I had to be involved with white folks. And to some degree, I was advantaged even in that I attended the same elementary school from the time I was in preschool all the way until the eighth grade. So I think there's there's one teacher who was at my school longer than me. So wow. I very much felt like I owned the place. Yeah, no, that's, that is actually great for building confidence. That's awesome. Exactly. Sometimes I would walk around the hallways with no hall pass because I knew I could. If anybody mm-hmm. stopped me, they would just be like, oh, hey, Austin. Yeah. So even though I was at a predominantly white school, I can't say that I felt like an outsider. I very much felt like, no, this is my school. I would not change my educational experiences. I would not change where I went to high school, um, which, again, was a private white um, Catholic high school, but had 20 percent diversity and was located in the hood. And so, again, it's just felt like my school. That did not prepare me for adulthood. When my paycheck, when my paycheck, when my health benefits were attached to whether or not I could make white people like me. In my education, the only thing that happened was maybe I got a bad grade and I was shocked. I, I didn't think whiteness had the power to, that whiteness would be so powerful that I might lose myself. Do you remember that first moment when you experienced like, oh, whoa, this is a new world for me? I I remember my very first job out of college and I was promised, I, I had been a business major in college and I was promised by the CEO of the organization who was a woman, a white woman, that she would teach me and train me on fundraising and how to ask for money and how to write grants. And right. So even though my position was probably, you know, an administrative assistant, something someone right out of college would have, she was like, but don't you worry, because we are going to like rock this. Right. And before I knew it, friends, I was putting rolls of toilet paper in the bathrooms if the janitor didn't show up and the like board of directors was almost entirely white and it was my job to go like get them food when they had their big meetings. And so I would run around the city collecting everybody's orders and then drop it off. And when I tell you how weird it is to be a young black woman dropping food off for a bunch of old white people, it is not, it, it, 
Oh, you all don't see this? Does nobody see this? And I had started to try to speak up really by thanking the people around me who didn't make me feel weird. And then Mm -hmm. I got in trouble for that and was told that I was trying to stir up conflict. And Mm. I was just like, wow, none of my tools are working here. And it was, it was jolting. And now for a quick break. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in LA. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm preaching to somebody today who is waiting for God to give you your next step. And you don't know what it is yet. You need God to show you your next step. Because God, I can't stay where I am like I am where it is. This isn't going to work. I I have to move on, but I don't know where. A lot of time you'll use it as an excuse. Well, I don't know how. I don't know where. I don't know what. God, if you show me. God, if you tell me. God, no, 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 no. You know enough right now. And if you needed to know more, he would show you. Hey, this is Stephen Furtick. I want to invite you to listen to my podcast, Elevation with Stephen Furtick. I am here to help you for the battles that you face in life, for the times when you feel discouraged, for the times that you need guidance from God. I want to give you the truth of what he says about you to help you rise to your full potential. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and I'm back for another season of my podcast, Climbing in Heels. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as fully obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. My podcast, Climbing in Heels, is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season, we're taking things up a notch. I'll be talking to some incredible women across so many industries, from models and beauty industry stars to doctors, entrepreneurs, and TV personalities. Climbing in Heels is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Every week, listeners will be able to ask me any questions. I'm answering it all. My life is absolutely crazy with so much going on, and I'm so beyond excited to bring you along for the ride. Whether we're talking red carpet looks, current trends, or products I'm obsessed with, I'm here to be your fashion fairy godmother. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So what was your career trajectory after that? I mean, how did you get to this place where you are now this, you know, award-winning writer chosen as Hello Sunshine's Book of the Month? And can I just add to that too, which like, sorry, Sam, to jump in. Like, why did you start writing? Like your blog, Mm -hmm. like how did all of that play into it? Oh God, it's all divine intervention, friends. So Trayvon Martin is murdered at the hands of George Zimmerman. Um, a couple years later, I want to say two, but don't quote me on that. Two years later, the actual trial of George Zimmerman is happening and I'm working at this church. The church has two services, a Saturday night service and a Sunday morning service. And it just so happens that one of my friends from college (laughs) is going to be the one who is preaching during this weekend that the George Zimmerman verdict comes down. So she comes on Saturday night. She does her thing. She talks about whatever it is that she talks about that Sunday. We, I mean, Saturday, we all go home. We get the news that George Zimmerman is not going to face justice for what he did to Trayvon Martin. We come back the next morning and my friend who's going to be preaching that morning, supposed to do the exact same sermon she did the, the night before. She says, so how are we changing the service today? Are we doing an all black panel on how folks feel? Are we turning this into like a prayer service? Like what, what are we doing? How do we need to do this differently? And she is explicitly told that she should not mention one word of what happened, not Trayvon, not George Zimmerman, not the verdict. She is to say nothing. And then the pastor, after telling her, you do not say anything, says, I hope that since this is my church, that you will respect the like authority that I am casting over you right now. And then bows his head to pray over the service. So she can't even I mean, so what, hap- so what happened next? She got up and she gave mostly the same sermon. <laughs> with the exception. <laughs> Of also mentioning what happened. Of course. Right? She said, she said before she got on stage, she did tell one of the other like staff people on the show, if you let me on that stage, I am going to say something. So if there's something you need to do right now to make sure that I never make it on that stage, by all means. Mm -hmm. But there's no way. She said, there are people here who have come 
who expect me to say something and I can't not say something. She said, now I'm not going to be disrespectful. I'm not going, you know, I'm not going to start yelling and screaming. I'm not going to, right? Like it will be embedded in the sun. There's a lot of head shaking happening right now, friends. <laughs> but, but why? Like, but why? Fear. Fear. Fear of pissing off major donors to the church. Mm. Fear that people would get up and walk out. I mean, I don't know. Whatever the hell white people are afraid of when a conversation about race happens. And it was weeks later that I was called into my supervisor's office for a meeting that was supposed to be about helping me, supporting me in my workload. And instead, I was asked to give my two-week notice so that the week that I would be gone forever, my whole staff would be on a retreat. And when they Mm. would come back, I would simply be gone. And you would have quit. You were not fired, right? Because that would have been more convenient for them. You got it. Yeah. It's not a shocking story. It's probably a story that happens every single day in every single city across America. And that is why I had to write a book about it, right? Because here I am aware. And and obviously, this is multi-layered, right? So I tell that story. But it's also that Black women in certain positions, maybe in every position, but in different ways, are expected to be just like all the white people until they need us to be whatever their version of Blackness is, right? So in a church context, I have a girlfriend, God, I have a girlfriend who was in like the music department and she was constantly expected to sing white Christian contemporary music, right? To the best of her ability and to make all the white people feel all their feelings until MLK Day. And then on MLK Day, she needed to like belt out the gospel and do the spoken word and like show up in all her black female glory Right. And, and that microcosm hap- is happening across America. Right. That black women are expected to be just like white women until you need someone who's sassy or until you need someone who's angry or until you need some inspiration or until you. And then I'm supposed to be the genie where you rub my sides and I come out and give you all this black culture and then I put it back so that we can all go back to normal. And that's why I had to write a book. I had to write a book so that black women knew they weren't making this up that these experiences were real and they were happening and the expectations around whiteness, if they go uninterrogated, can rip apart our souls. And I wanted to try to be a part of putting a Band-Aid on the souls of Black women. Do you feel you accomplished that? Most days. (laughs) Most days. I've had to really um, adjust how I approach this work. So, for example... (laughs) This is so embarrassing. But when I first started doing this work, subconsciously, I I would try really hard to make white women cry if I was like doing a lecture or a workshop or something on racial justice. And that's just the whole truth, friends. It's the whole truth. Because I thought if I could get white men to cry, then that must mean they care, right? That must mean they finally see me as like a whole person. And now they're going to go out and do the right thing. Mm-hmm. Except maybe that's not what happened. And more importantly, it was exhausting for me. I mean, it was, and it was always <laughs> exhausting for the people of color in the room, right? For that to be like our secret mission is to make all the white people in the room get it. And so now when I have a lecture, when I give a workshop, when I do anything publicly, 
I am consciously thinking that my standard of success is whether or not Black women feel seen and affirmed and heard. So that if I was to do it all over again, Black women would say, I'll be there. If instead a Black woman would be like, child, that wore me out, then I have failed. So I'm, I'm learning. I'm learning how to do this differently so that Black women are the definition of whether or not this was successful at all. Hmm. That their emotional well-being is of the utmost importance. What led to that transformation and goal? Yeah. <laughs> um, I, <laughs> I was in a training, a like white privilege, get your stuff together, white people, right, kind of training. And the trainer was using the exact same like format that I would be using. <laughs> so she was doing like the same activities and right, same thing. And at the end of the activities, um, <laughs> she had physically turned her body so that she could only see the white people in the room. And there were a handful of people of color who were now standing behind her, but who had their hand raised because they wanted to contribute to the conversation that was happening. But she was so focused on making sure that the white people in the room got it. She literally couldn't see mm. the hands of the people of color behind her. And I thought, never again, never again. Because mm. it, it wasn't until I saw someone else doing what I do, <laughs> right? That I realized, oh, I am treating this conversation as if white people are the linchpin to racial justice. So much so that the people of color in the room are being ignored. We can't see them, we can't hear them. They're raising their hands and we don't notice. They have something to contribute and we don't get to hear it. Uh, and I decided right then I would never do it the same way. Our conversation with Austin was far reaching and we covered a lot of ground. So Sam and I felt that it deserved two parts. So tune in next week when we dig into Austin's supportive marriage, the racist origins of the modern day prison system, and our shared obsession with Oprah. Thanks for listening to What's Her Story with Sam and Amy. We would so appreciate if you would leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, connect with us on social media at What's Her Story Podcast. What's Her Story with Sam and Amy is powered by my company, The Riveter, at theriveter.co and Sam's company, Park Place Payments, at parkplacepayments.com. Thanks to our producer and editor, Laurel Moglin, our podcast associate, Phoebe Cranefuss, and our male perspective, Lou Burns. Every family has an origin story, one passed down through the generations. Mine happens to be a mystery involving my great-great-grandmother left behind in Sicily. I'm Joe Piazza, and my new podcast will transport you to the gorgeous island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a whodunit for the ages. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From Wonder Media Network, I'm Jenny Kaplan, host of Womanica, a daily podcast that introduces you to the fascinating lives of women history has forgotten. We've always been intrigued by stories of disappearances. 
whether it's a fraudster from the 17th century who kept evading the authorities or a novelist who taunted the Nazis and faked her own death. We all want to know, what happened next? To find out, listen to Womanica on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Pitbull. I think that education is the real revolution because as much as we speak about all the problems that there is in society and the world today, my mother's always told me, son, don't worry, the world's always been coming to an end. Don't let it scare you out of living. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 